Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. This show is sponsored by our members who made donations. We'd like to give them a very big thank you. We have to cover the monthly costs of the radio station's software, bandwidth, phone lines and phone calls to be able to continue with the radio show. And thank you for listening. Today my guest is Dr. Ruscio, uh, and I love the bio he has. Uh, it says, Dr. Ruscio gives smart, busy people suffering from symptoms like daily bloating, constant fatigue and unexplained weight gain, simple steps to start living a healthy, enjoyable life again, no matter how long you've been suffering. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Ruscio. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So... After that lovely snippet of your bio there, what do you actually do to treat people who are suffering with these symptoms that have, they've been having for years? Well, good question. It's, it's uh, I guess, a, a lead into a very maybe broad answer, but I'll, I'll try to give you the, the short synopsis. Yeah, I, I tend to look at things in a, a very gut-first philosophy. And it's not to say that I'm a, a, you know, a, a gut uh, heretic, where I, I only believe in in treating the gut, but there are many different um, conditions that I'm sure both clinicians and patients grapple with, and it's hard to sometimes determine what do I do first. Should I have a heavy metal test? Should I have a adrenal hormone test? Should I have a female or male hormone test? Should I have a thyroid analysis? Should I do a gut workup? Should I uh, test for mold or or um, Lyme? And I think a very prudent approach is to first start with your dietary and lifestyle foundations. And, and sometimes diet gets a bit hairy because there's a few different or you know, maybe more than a few different diets that could be a appropriate starting position. But at least someone putting some effort into their diet and lifestyle, getting their house in order in that regard. And then if they're not improved symptomatically, to then have a good look into and take steps to optimize their gut health. Um, and so that's that's really where I put the brunt of, of my focus, both in my clinical practice and in the research that I perform in my office and also with some of the research that I review for the newsletter that I write and, and what have you. And also along with that, I take a, a fairly cautious uh, but, but um, progressive look into the gut-thyroid connection and thyroid health because that's another very important area. There's an immense tie-in between someone's thyroid health both from a hormone production and conversion perspective and from an autoimmune perspective to their gut and their gut health. So those are the, the, the areas that I look mostly to which are to one's gut health and to one's thyroid health. And through trying to optimize those, there are many symptoms and conditions that you know you can see fairly positive outcomes with. Mm -hmm. So, with the gut health, 
where do you start with that? Where's your starting point? Well, with gut health, I like to start with diet. Um, now, it also depends on the person you are or the person, if you're a clinician, walking in your door. Uh, if someone hasn't really gone on any type of healthy diet, I'll typically start with just diet. And oftentimes, I'll start someone with a paleo diet. And sometimes the paleo diet is typified to be this very high meat, especially high red meat, high fat diet, but it really doesn't have to be. You can have a, a you know, a, a few different derivations on the paleo diet that can range all the way from higher carb, lower fat, to lower fat, higher carb. But the, the main tenet of the paleo diet is removal of processed foods and also a decreased consumption, if not you know, elimination of things like mostly grains uh, and then also some beans and legumes and a focus on meats, nuts and seeds, fruits and vegetables, and healthy sources of fat. Uh, and, and that's a really a good starting point for the gut. Now, if someone comes in with a high degree of digestive symptoms, kind of like your classic IBS-type symptoms, gas, bloating, loose stools, uh, diarrhea, constipation, or potentially an oscillation between the two, then we'll oftentimes start with a low FODMAP diet, which has been very well studied in the context of IBS. And so the paleo diet is a general starting point, or if someone has a high degree of digestive symptoms, we may use either what's known as the, the standard, or how I term the standard low FODMAP diet, or the paleo low FODMAP diet, which is essentially a combination of the paleo diet rules plus the low FODMAP diet rules. And um, the low FODMAP diet does allow things like grains and dairy, which the paleo diet does not. However, you could combine them again into the paleo low FODMAP diet. And this, this is what accounts for if someone's gone out and they've researched on the internet the FODMAP diet or the low FODMAP diet, excuse me, and they see different food lists, sometimes that's because you'll see a paleo-minded author or nutritionist who's doing their interpretation on the low FODMAP diet. And so they start with the standard low FODMAP diet, then they cut out things that are not compliant with the paleo diet, like grains and dairy, thus leaving you with the paleo low FODMAP diet. It's just that they're not always labeled as such on the internet. But those are two very good places to start with diet. Mm -hmm. I did the um, FODMAP diet, but I didn't have um, grains or dairy either. And I have to say it was quite restrictive to start with. It's um, you've got to be dedicated to do it, haven't you? Then it's not just for a week or two; it's for quite a while, isn't it? Well, actually, so I would I would submit that you can actually achieve a lot of the benefit from merely using a two to three week experimental trial with one of these diets. And and I think you're hitting at something that's actually very important, which is sometimes these diets are recommended to be performed for a long period of time. But but really, and, and I think there's many clinicians who, who are moving in this direction and kind of seeing this, for most diets, two to three weeks is enough time to evaluate if that diet is helpful for you. And typically what I advise patients to do, and this is also something that I, I discuss in my book that I recently published, is to give these diets two to three weeks 
And you should have a sense that, yes, clearly I'm feeling better. It's not to say you should feel 100% improved, but by the two to three week mark, you should have a sense of, yes, I clearly feel better or eh, I can't really say I feel any different. And if you're feeling better, what I'd recommend people do is ride the wave until you hit your peak level of improvement. And that, that may be after a total of four weeks, it may be a after a total of eight weeks, but ride the wave until you hit your peak level of improvement. And shortly after that, you can start to reintroduce some of the foods that you cut out because for most people, they don't need to adhere to the low FODMAP diet or the paleo diet 100%. They usually find that there are a number of foods that they can bring back into their diet and be okay with, but there's a few foods they have to be cautious with. And when, when they reintroduce the foods, they have a reaction and, and now they say to themselves, okay, I was okay with dairy. I was okay with rice, but I brought in, let's say gluten. And that was a problem for me. And if I have too much avocado or too much asparagus or broccoli all in one day, those tend to bloat me because one is a non-paleo compliant food and one is a non-low FODMAP compliant food. And, and so, yeah, you're, you're at your, um, poking at something that's actually really important, which is using these diets more as a mini experiment and moving someone through them quickly. And then also once result is obtained, moving them to a reintroduction fairly quickly also, so they don't feel like they're being you know, totally um, overcome by, by dietary restrictions. And that helps to make things much easier on the patient end of, uh, you know, of the recommendations. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the other question we're always being asked is, should we be having a fat-free diet? If we're allowed to have fats, which fats are good fats? Mm, good question. Um, the, the, there's a few different ways to look at fats. Of course, cutting out processed fats like trans fats is a no-brainer. Um, then when we come to any kind of naturally occurring fat, whether it's a vegetable fat or a fat from an animal protein, one of the first things to consider is how much carbohydrate you're eating in your diet. Usually the lower someone goes in carbohydrate, the more fat they end up bringing into their diet because they need something to replace all of the carbohydrates that they've cut out. So this is why I look at you know, diets in the context of at one end, we have a high fat, low carb. At the other end, we have a high carb, low fat. Um, now, some people with IBS do feel better when they eat a lower fat diet. But there's also some people with IBS who feel better when they eat a lower carb, higher fat diet, uh, almost like a ketogenic type diet some patients do well on. So what I like to do is start people off with a moderate level of carbohydrate restriction. And you know, if people want specifics, I would say that a moderate level of carbohydrate restriction might be keeping your daily carbs around 100 to anywhere from 100 to about 175 grams a day. That's going to limit you from, from overindulging in carbs. It's going to lower your carbs, but not lower your carbs so much as to potentially have the risk of being too low carb for your metabolism and causing things like fatigue, insomnia, which can be a problem if one goes too low carb. And we keep them there for a few weeks, see how they do. And as part of that dietary reintroduction we were discussing a moment ago, one of the things that people tend to do 
is bring back in carbs, right? And, you know, oftentimes there, there might be gluten-free grains we have people start with or more things like potatoes or sweet potatoes or squashes. Um, and so as part of the food reintroduction, there's, there's a natural gravitation to bring more carbs into the diet. And you assess how someone does when they bring more carbs back in. And there are definitely people who, when they increase their carb intake, they have more rice, more potato, more fruit, what, what have you, they actually feel uh, quite a bit better. So, um, you know, I look at the fat more so in relationship to the carbs. And with the fats, really, um, any anything from a plant-based fat, something like avocado or olive oil, all the way through fatty cuts of meat, like steak or, or chicken thighs, what have you, I think are permissible. The one thing I think to keep in mind is that when someone is increasing their fat intake, one of the things I see left out oftentimes is not incorporating enough fish or fatty fish into the diet. And there was a survey, a worldwide survey of hunter-gatherer populations and looking at the macronutrient consumption of different hunter-gatherers, and they stratified these from uh, different latitudinal zones. So you have about uh, zero to 30 degrees of latitude is considered somewhat equatorial. 30 to 40 degrees is somewhat Mediterranean or kind of in your traditional zone. And then plus 40 degrees is your northerly um, climates. And what this literature showed, this review showed, was that the farther away from the equator you go, the lower the carbohydrate consumption becomes and the higher the fat con consumption becomes. And the main driver of that increase in fat consumption was actually the consumption of oily fish, things like salmon, sardines, what have you. And I think that's important uh, to just to keep in mind to make sure you're, you know, if you're eating a higher fat, lower carb diet, you don't uh, just have bison and beef and bison and beef as, as some mm -hmm. people do. They get really, really hog wild on the uh, grass fed beef, which is great. But it's important to look at kind of some of the historical context of our hunter-gatherer ancestors to try to point us in the right direction going forward and just to make sure that you have adequate fish consumption in your diet. So sorry for the long-winded answer. Mm, <laughs> a few fine. thoughts on fat. I mean, personally, I always try and cut all the fat off my meat. So should I be eating some fat on meat? Well, I really think it depends on how much carbohydrate you're eating. Now, if you're eating a a higher carb diet where you're having, let's say at every meal, you're having some type of dense carb mm -hmm. like rice or quinoa or potato or sweet potato or squash, or you're having a fair amount of fruit, then I would not be consuming that fat that accompanies the meat or, or doing so minimally and, and opting for cuts of meat that are lower in fat. So instead of chicken thighs or skin on chicken breast, you would use chicken breast without the skin. Mm -hmm. Or you would uh, opt for cuts of beef that are lower in fat or add less fat when cooking, right? So instead of adding uh, you know, a fairly generous amount of coconut oil when cooking, you would use olive oil, but do so in a light amount or use coconut oil, but use so in a lighter amount. Um, so a lot of, again, a lot of the fat consumption piece comes down to how much carbs you're eating and, and trying to keep that inverse relationship between more fat and less carbs. Hmm. That's really interesting. Thank you. And then you were talking about um, thyroid and the gut. Mm -hmm. Would you like to explain that to us? 
Oh gosh, <laughs> where to begin? Because there, there's there's a lot here to to discuss. <laughs> um, yeah, there there was one paper published about a year ago, or within the past year, that assessed. I believe it was. 1,809 patients, and this was a clinic, or it was actually a multi-center um, trial, I believe, so different clinics all pulling their data, trying to assess what the highest risk factors were for someone being hypothyroid, oh, I'm sorry, for, for someone having small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or SIBO, which is a you know, quite simply an, an overgrowth, too much bacteria in the small intestine. So they looked at about... 1,800 patients, and they assess for things like acid-lowering medication use, um, immunosuppressive drug use, intestinal surgery, which can cause problems with bacterial overgrowth. And out of all the factors they looked at, they actually found that the number one and or two, two of the top three contributors to having small intestinal bacterial overgrowth were actually being hypothyroid or being diagnosis hypothyroid and now being on thyroid medication. These were even more of a risk factor for SIBO than if people were on acid-lowering medication or immunosuppressive drugs or had had previous gastrointestinal surgery. So there's definitely something connecting the gut to the thyroid. Um, and, and so we do see that people with hypothyroidism have an increased risk of SIBO. And there, there's kind of this neat, I guess it's neat if you're a gut geek like I am, but we also see some of the research literature showing that those with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth have a higher, um, I don't want to say risk, but they have a higher colonization with H. pylori or Helicobacter pylori, which is a bacterium that can reside in the stomach. And how this connects back into the thyroid picture is we have other data showing, or at least preliminary data, showing that the treatment of H. pylori in those who also have thyroid autoimmunity can decrease the thyroid autoimmunity. So it seems that the gut, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, H. pylori, hypothyroidism are all connected, and by improving the health of one's gut, we can certainly see an improvement in thyroid autoimmunity and also, in my opinion, in thyroid function globally and for the, the, the need for thyroid medication. Now, this is not published. This is more so what I've seen in the clinic. I think at some point we will see this published. But fairly routinely now, when a patient comes in with impaired gut health, and let's say they're already on levothyroxine or, or Synthroid or what have you, when we take steps to improve their gut health, they actually start to exhibit signs of being overdosed on their thyroid medication. And I believe that's happening because as we improve their gut health, they're absorbing more of that medication, and so now they need a lesser dose. Um, you could also make the argument that as we improve their gut health, they're better converting their T4 into T3, and so they even need less of a dose. But certainly from a thyroid hormone medication dose standpoint, from a thyroid autoimmunity standpoint, and from a thyroid conversion standpoint, by improving one's gut health, we have decent data to support. One will also increase all those aspects of their thyroid function. Wow. And we, I've, I've learned from the LDN conferences that people are now saying, you know, the gut is the second brain. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just amazing, isn't it? How much is controlled through the gut? 
Well, the, the gut brain connection is, is another amazing connection. And, you know, I'll, I'll pin that for just one moment because there's one other factor I just wanted to make sure to offer people that I think is very helpful, especially if you're, if you're using LDN, whether you're a practitioner or you're a patient, you may be using LDN in the context of thyroid to improve your thyroid antibodies. And the most typically assessed thyroid antibody is TPO or thyroid peroxidase. And there's confusion in terms of how to look at the number of your TPO test to know if you're succeeding or if you need to keep acting clinically. Now, I'm not sure what the cutoff value is in the UK, but if you take the lab ranges cutoff, in the US it's usually 30 to 35, and anything above 30 to 35 is considered positive for TPO antibodies. So take whatever lab you're using, if it's in the UK they may use different units, so it may be a different range, but essentially what some of the research is finding here in the United States is when TPO antibodies are below 500, that's normally considered a clinical win. And that's actually very important because what I observe happens is when someone is doing nothing for their thyroid health, then their TPO antibodies may be 800, 900, 1300, right, in the high hundreds or low thousands. And then they take steps to improve their health, clean up their diet, use probiotics, take vitamin D, perhaps using LDN also as an anti-autoimmune synergist. And now they're feeling quite a bit better and their thyroid antibodies are, are, let's say, 425. So the lab is saying that the, the antibodies are still positive. So this makes either the, the clinician or the patient think they have to keep treating the thyroid antibodies to lower them more and more. And I would just encourage people to be cautious there because if someone is is healthy and, and fairly devoid of symptoms and their antibodies are in the low hundreds, usually I, I like to see anyone between 100 to 400, 3 or 400, then I consider that a clinical win, meaning you don't need to do more therapies. You don't necessarily need to increase your dose of LDN. This seems to be a level of thyroid antibodies that is considered, again, a clinical win. And, and why that's important is because some of the research literature does show that the the higher the antibodies, the higher the risk for progression of thyroid autoimmunity. But it's it's not to say that if you're positive at 200, 300, you have the same risk as someone who's 1300. And sometimes, unfortunately, patients and or providers are trying to treat that number down to zero or down to in the normal range. And oftentimes that doesn't happen, but it doesn't mean that you haven't won, you know, quote unquote, won clinically. So it's just one thing that I, I, I want to chime in there just to help people because I, I find there's a lot of confusion in that uh, realm. And I'm happy to talk about the, the gut-brain connection, but I just I wanted to mm -hmm. make sure to chime that one in also. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and regarding the, the gut-brain connection, there's so much interesting stuff that we're learning about the connection between one's gut and one's brain and you know even one's gut and one's skin um, also um, one of the things that I suffered from when I had gastrointestinal issues years and years ago was brain fog and brain fog is a terrible symptom uh, you feel like you can't hold a conversation because you're you feel 
inarticulate. You can't remember things. You feel kind of out of it. Um, it's, it's really an unpleasant symptom. And there's research now being published that's really showing the gut-brain connection. I, I think the best research that we have showing the gut-brain connection is a systematic review with meta-analysis, which essentially summarizes the available clinical trial data and tries to give us an aggregate opinion on what the body of the clinical literature says, has found that for both anxiety and depression, probiotics have a favorable impact on both of these conditions. And, and of course, probiotics can heal the gut in a number of ways. They can be anti-inflammatory. They can actually be antibacterial and fungal. So if someone has a bacterial or fungal overgrowth, probiotics can help with those. Uh, probiotics generally don't seem to colonize you, which is which I think is a bit of a misnomer, but they do exert a lot of positive impact by their antibacterial and antifungal effects. And probably what they do, amongst other things, is help to rectify dysbiosis by secreting these antibacterial and antifungal peptides, which seem to push out or, or um, be somewhat antagonistic to overgrowths of bacteria and fungus or harmful forms of bacterial and fungus. And by pushing out these bad guys or these overgrown players, the other players can now come out and, and flourish and we can see a rebalancing of the microbiota. So yes, there's, there's definitely this gut-brain connection. And for people with mood issues and also with brain fog, it may be hard to connect a dot that your gut is driving those symptoms, especially if you don't have any gut symptoms. But it can happen. And in fact, I was the first case of that I had experienced where I had no digestive symptoms. I did have an amoebic infection, which is fairly pathogenic. I had no digestive symptoms, but my predominant symptoms were insomnia, brain fog, fatigue, and mood dips. And those all cleared once I improved my gut health. So you can have a non-gut symptom, depression, insomnia, anxiety, brain fog, being driven by a gut problem, H. pylori, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, candida, what have you. Mm. That's really exciting. And um, I've got MS and I had lots of intravenous steroids and for 18 months. I then became a type 2 diabetic. I was in bed at that time. I had brain fog too, which is just how you described. It's terrible. Mm. But when I changed my diet and went dairy-free, gluten-free, processed, sugar-free, processed foods out of the window everything fresh I was actually able to reverse my type 2 diabetes and I'm in the range of um, pre-diabetic but I'm not diabetic anymore and I don't have to take um, metformin anymore have you come across other people that have managed to reverse diabetes through diet oh yes I think diabetes is is so amenable to dietary change. Absolutely. I mean, type 2 diabetes, that is. Type 1 is a little bit more of a different story. Mm -hmm. But ap absolutely. Um, by improving one's diet, you can absolutely see fairly remarkable improvements in a lot of things, right? Not just diabetes, not just mood, uh, many different things. And, and that's why I always start with diet for exactly the reasons that you outlined, because diet is really the foundation. And I always picture in my mind a pyramid. And I think about this pyramid where we have diet and lifestyle at the bottom and then a rung up from there we have gut health and then a rung up from there we may have a more advanced evaluation of thyroid health and then a rung up from there we may have things like 
uh, male and female hormones, toxicity, uh, you know, um, potentially Lyme or, or mold uh, or even um, uh, you know, other associated disorders with, with metabolism. And, and so I always try to think about the person coming to see me and where they need to enter into that pyramid. And so the diet is always the foundation for the exact reasons that you mentioned, uh, because it can be so powerful. And yes, for type 2 diabetes, and there's a number of studies showing that all diets, all, I shouldn't say all diets, all healthy diets, you know, the, the mm -hmm. Snickers is an ice cream diet is not going to help. <laughs> um, but Again, sometimes there's this debate, you know, low carb, high carb, you know, which one is better? You have the the vegetarians and, and the, the Pritikin folks against the, the Atkins folks and there's, you know, or the paleo folks. And there's all this infighting, uh, you know, in the diet community about what diet is better. But when you look at the dietary trials, you see that, yes, a plant-based, higher carb, lower fat diet can help markedly with diabetes, as can a more Atkins or a more paleo if it's a if it's a higher fat lower carb diet, and you know they, they both work. Now, the the lower carb for diabetes specifically does tend to work a little bit better, but the effect size between the two diets, meaning which one is more effective than the other, that's the effect size. It's not that large. Uh, so yes, the, the lower carb diet does tend to work better. That's where I would probably steer people. But again, there's also data showing for some populations uh, that they may do better on a higher carb, lower fat diet. There's one study in particular in a group of women in Asia that put women on either a, a high carb, low fat diet or a low carb, high fat diet. And even though the majority of the literature shows a slight edge for weight loss with a lower carb diet, in this group of Asian women, they actually lost more weight on the high carb low-fat diet. Mm -hmm. So it's you know so it's important not to be dogmatic regarding diet, but look at the person in front of you and try to help them navigate through the available diets quickly, two to three weeks, you know, per per intervention to try to find the diet that works best for them. That's fantastic. Well we're nearly at the end of the show. Would you like to tell people about your book, where they can purchase it and what it's about? Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> um, <laughs> The, the book is entitled Healthy Gut, Healthy You. It's available on Amazon. You can also go to healthygutthealthyyoubook.com to learn more about the book. But essentially, this book was me trying to give people a very reasonable and responsible education on their gut health, why it's so important, all the things that it can benefit, and then taking all that information um, – Combining it with an education on different diets like we've talked about, at least in short, different probiotics, different herbal medicines. And then at the very end, putting all that together into a personalized action plan. So there's a number of steps and at the end of each step, we check in on someone's symptoms and we steer them down the path that's going to be best for them. For some people, they'll have a two-step plan and they'll feel great. For other people that may have more progressed symptoms or, or conditions, they may need six to seven steps before they feel great. But it's a fully personalized plan that helps people figure all this stuff out. Should I be high carb? Should I be low carb? Should I be on probiotics? Um, I've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I've heard that probiotics are bad if you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Should I be using vitamin D, adrenal support, enzymes? Um, should I try herbal antimicrobials to kill some of these bad bacteria? 
Uh, if so, you know, do I do them with probiotics or not with probiotics? And you know, how long do I do them for? There's a lot of questions, and and so I tried to lay out a plan that could really help people navigate through this. And it's essentially the same kind of thinking and process I take people through at the clinic. Uh, so I'm, I'm very excited about this book because I, I think it will really help people navigate again all this information that they're not sure how to use, when to use, and what sequence to use. And and so I'm I'm very excited and very happy to have this out there as an offering to to help people. Wow! If it's covering all of that, it must be like an encyclopedia. It must be a massive book. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's about three hundred and and thirty pages, and and there's just under a thousand references in the book, but it's written in very plain language, and, and so I tried to make the book conceptually advanced, but easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And and you'd be surprised how much a layperson can really take in, in terms of how 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 much they can take in and how much they can learn if you just have a logical lesson plan that's in plain language and that tries to make these things as easy to understand as possible. So yes, there is a lot there, but it's definitely accessible to the beginner also. Wow, that's amazing. And how do people contact you if they would like to come and have a consultation at your clinic? Well, the best way to contact me is to head over to my website, which is drrusho.com, which is D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And I do see patients physically in my office in Northern California, outside of San Francisco, and also via telemedicine, via Skype or, or what have you if they're not in our area. And um, there's also a number of other resources for people that they can plug into at our website also. Well, thank you for being our guest today. We have learned so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. This show is sponsored by our members who made donations. We'd like to give them a very big thank you. We have to cover the monthly costs of the radio station's software, bandwidth, phone lines and phone calls to be able to continue with the radio show. And thank you for listening. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, Linda. L-I-N-D-A at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.